Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. You're dealing in a world that's like above the 23-year-old's fundamental, like that's been in America for nine months. So I felt we could improve. I'm busy. You know what I mean? And I felt slightly embarrassed a year later because I knew there was a lot of black chefs that had worked hard and deserved all the accolades. And all of a sudden, with one scoop, I became one of the most recognized black chefs in the country, in the world. And that's a <clears> lot for someone who's 23. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, the host of At the End of the Tunnel. If this is your first time listening to At the End of the Tunnel, this is a podcast that tells the story behind the story of change makers who have taken a leap of faith, who've overcome a huge life challenge, and who've used their platform for social good. And this week, my guest is a world-famous culinary guru. He is a three-time James Beard award-winning chef. And he's the founder of Red Rooster in Harlem, USA. His name is Mr. Marcus Samuelson. I've been a fan of Marcus's for many years as I was living in New York at the time that his star was rising in the culinary world. In fact, Red Rooster was just down the street from my apartment. And I was so excited to have this conversation, especially after reading his 2012 memoir called Yes, Chef. He's written many other books since. And he's got his own podcast and he's been featured on several shows. But that book, in my opinion, tells his origin story so well. And as you know, I'm obsessed with origin stories. Now, one note about this interview with Marcus. We only had a very short time to talk, so I didn't get a chance to go as deep as you're probably used to hearing me go. But I want to take a little time now to give you some context into Marcus's fascinating backstory in case you're unfamiliar with it. So when Marcus was three and his sister was five, they were in Ethiopia and there was a tuberculosis epidemic happening at that time. And both of them, along with their mother, contracted tuberculosis. They were coughing up blood and the whole thing. But there were no doctors in their little village, which was located about 75 miles outside of the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. So get this. His mom carried three-year-old Marcus on her back with his sister in tow, and they walked the 75 miles by foot to get to the hospital. But when they arrived at the hospital, there were a thousand other people waiting to get in, and somehow his mother was able to get them help. But unfortunately, she never left the hospital, so Marcus and his sister were separated from their family, and they were orphaned and put up for adoption, which was how they ended up in Sweden. Crazy story, right? Well, that was just the beginning because Marcus's new family was a working class family and they only went out to eat a couple times a year for very special occasions, which meant that they spent a lot of time cooking. And especially his Swedish grandmother, whose excellent cooking skills inspired Marcus to pursue a path of becoming a chef. 
As Marcus worked his way up through the ranks, he was often the only black person in the kitchen. He witnessed a ton of derogatory remarks by many of the chefs he worked under. And the moment that inspired him to eventually pursue his own restaurant was when a top Michelin chef that he was working for in France told him not to even bother trying to open up your own restaurant because Marcus, you're black. And as a black chef, it's going to be impossible because no other black chef has ever done it. So Marcus took a leap of faith. He left France. He went to New York with only $300 to his name. And he ended up talking his way into getting hired at an upscale Swedish restaurant called Aquavit. And then soon after, the executive chef at Aquavit died of a heart attack. And Marcus got promoted to the executive chef at the young age of 23. So basically, he had his own restaurant. And then nine months later, Aquavit was awarded a three-star review by the New York Times, which was the equivalent of winning an Oscar for cooking. So after years of study and apprenticeship and navigating racism and being very focused and much of the time working for free because as a black chef, he had to prove himself over and over by saying, look, let me just work for free. And then you can see for yourself that I know what I'm doing. After all of that, Marcus became recognized as one of the most talented chefs in the international culinary scene. However, he was still known as the black chef because there just weren't that many black people in those fine dining kitchens. So Marcus was determined to open the door to more women and to more people of color in his kitchens. Then 911 happened and his restaurant closed. And then later, Marcus's old business partner, the owner of Aquavit, came after him claiming that he owned a financial stake in Marcus's name because Marcus got famous while working at Aquavit. So Marcus had to use his life savings to buy the rights to his own name. And then shortly after that, he ended up cooking for Obama's first state dinner as president, and he won a top chef competition on television. And then he was able to open Red Rooster in Harlem, which he refers to as a love note to the legacy of Harlem. He went from employing 250 people and feeding 4,000 miles a week to having to close his doors back in March of 2020 as a result of the pandemic. But of course, that wasn't the end of the story because Marcus teamed up with the World Central Kitchen and he turned Red Rooster basically into a food bank that served meals to people in the community and to essential workers. And to date, Marcus and his team have fed hundreds of thousands of people all while the future of his restaurant lingered in uncertainty. Marcus's journey reads like a real-life version of that book, The Alchemist, where a bright-eyed kid sets off on an epic adventure and experiences a lucky break, followed by a major obstacle where he loses everything, but then navigating around the obstacle forces him to innovate and iterate, and he becomes even more successful, only to confront a new challenge, lose everything again, and then rise from the ashes. So it was an honor getting to talk to Marcus Samuelson. There's obviously a lot more to the story. So let's get to the conversation and I'll let Marcus fill in the rest of the gaps. You come from a hell of a legacy, right? The story of your mother walking with you and your sister 75 miles to the hospital. All of you have tuberculosis. She's not surviving. You guys are sent to live with a nurse, with other kids. Like when you were a kid, 
was all that in your adoption profile? Did your parents make you aware of that? Because I know you said in your book that you can't even remember today what you remember or what you don't remember, and you have to rely on your sister. So I'm just curious, how aware of those circumstances were you when you were a kid, when you were playing soccer, when you were getting teased, when you were living this relatively privileged life? I think it's a blend. And, you know, my mom, my Swedish mother, she was very confident. She grew up very poor, but she was very confident. And this is that level of confidence that I brought with me, right? And mm-hmm. she constantly pushed us. And we were, when we left that house, we were confident. You know, our clothes looked right. We knew how to navigate and speak if somebody stopped us, which can happen. So she pushed me into confidence. My father was very strategic. He grew up poor, but he became a geologist and had his own company. So he's done sort of the whole class journey from poverty to upper middle class. So my father was much more strategic. You know, where my mom can very much sometimes evolve whether the kids at school used the N-words or not. And she wanted to come down and talk to their parents and talk to them. And as you get older, that just got worse and worse, right? I can go. We can go together. We can talk to, the, we can talk to them. I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, this, that dude is like two years older than me, and I have to go back to school tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? So, well, my father, he was not focused on that at all. He was focused mm-hmm. on strategic things, like your name will be Marcus because it's an international name. You most mm-hmm. likely will leave Sweden. You know, imagine you're a kid and this is told to you that you most, I don't know if you're going to live in England or America, but at some point in your life, you will. So, you know, when you're eight, nine, you don't think about it as isms, but he was thinking about it. And you all would have English weeks too, where you had to speak English that whole week. And it was highly frustrating because all you want to do is curse in Swedish, but like, <laughs> and my parents were of that generation where you might feel a couple of fingers in the back too. <laughs> You know, but it, you know, they did the best they could. You know, they were amazing parents and my grandparents were amazing. My cousins, I love my cousins, Korean cousins, I have a Canadian, French Canadian cousins. And we were like a tribe. Like if you went up against the Samuelson, you dealt with like eight, nine kids, you know what I mean? And we were Mm -hmm. gnarly, Mm -hmm. you know, and we did everything. We danced together. We played soccer together. We we had the swim team. No, we were like a little tribe and like you will get wrestled down. Do you know what I mean? And like I said, like my mother gave me confidence, like the balance between arrogance and confidence, right? So I'm 18 years old pulling up in Japan. I don't speak the language. No one speaks English. I'm black, clearly. They're not. And I managed to mm-hmm. navigate to work in the kitchen. That comes out of confidence. And that comes out of the confidence mm-hmm. the way my mom taught me confidence, right? Because 80% mm-hmm. of all communication is done through eyes and looks and smiles and stuff like that. And you needed that way before internet in Japan when you're a kid. You know, right. a lady, I pull up in Switzerland. And not only do I go there, I get the scholarship to get there. I'm not number two. I'm not number three. I'm number one, right? So, so, co- so that gives you a focus and a confidence. And I don't, I don't think that focus came from my father. It came from my mother. I'm in my 40s. You're in your 40s, right? I'm sure you know a lot of people who maybe when they were a kid thought they wanted to be a doctor or a police officer or whatever. Now they're a tech entrepreneur or they're doing something else. It's very rare that someone has that vision as a child and they stay so laser focused throughout their life 
pursuing that vision. And I'm curious, do you remember the moment you realized that being a chef was your calling? Yeah, absolutely. I remember several things between my, the years of 17 and 22. And food has given me so much. I remember traveling in Singapore, traveling Switzerland, traveling in Japan, and eating that Southeast Asian food and saying, who lied? This food is better. This speaks to me. But there was no vocabulary to love that food. There was no books about Singaporean street food. There was only books about French food. And I was going to France. And I was like, what is this about noodles? What is this curry from India? And it spoke to me the way hip-hop spoke to me. But there was no books about hip-hop, right? <laughs> Circa, mm-hmm. you know, 1992. Not yet, right? It was just rhythmically tribe spoke to me. You know what I mean? It was also a moment where I felt if I keep at this, blackness can be my advantage. I'm highly misunderstood in this moment. I have no money, literally no money, but I'm very happy. If I was even trying to go on a date, I was like, clearly cannot pay this bill. So we got to figure this out. But I was happy, right? So that took in everything. I was that kid in that corner learning. And I knew that I started to write my own food. Couldn't execute it because no one really cared what I wrote, but it was my food. And it was things like grilled grouper with galanga and lemongrass and chili. And guess what? My French roommate, he didn't know what galanga and lemongrass was, right? But he knew everything about French cooking. And I just thought, yes, I got it. So there was moments like that that just felt like sonically, rhythmically, this reminded me of soccer. I am on a different space. I know I can monetize or maximize on that right here, right now, but I know there is a way out. How did you get into the lifelong habit of journaling? It's so interesting. You mentioned that the two things you always had with you were your chef's knives and your journal. One of the blessings about being black male and black in general is that in order to make it, you just got to be better. And it gives mm-hmm. you, you get told early and you get, there's, very, there's a tight rope. And if you follow that rope, you will navigate through it if you stay healthy. And I've been very fortunate to stay healthy. So I get up every day since I was 17 years old. And I, I love food. I love the people that makes food. And I love the people that eat food. I love the thought processes around food. And I work hard every day about improving my team and myself around food. And then food is then allows me into these rooms because someone like yourself or going to the White House or going to whatever, Australia, whatever it is, right? That, but it's through food, right? It's not through anything else. You also were really good at talking yourself into positions and then also volunteering to work for free. And I know sometimes it didn't quite work out because the chef was just too close-minded. A lot of times it did work out. Where'd you get that from? Who, who taught you that level of work ethic? You know, watching my parents, but it w- there was two things to that. So if I worked a year, I really worked nine months. And then there were three months where I hustled. I went back to Gothenburg and, you know, we ran clubs. So we did, you know, I didn't sell any drugs, but, you know, like my friends sold drugs, but, you know, they're good kids. who so just hustled, right? We threw parties. And they gave me the money because everyone knew that I was on a journey. I may have to cook for the whole party or whatever. It was a trade-off, but you're like 18, 19. So then I had money or I made money during those three months. And then I had a little bit of cash for the rest of nine months. I didn't need a lot of money. I had board. I had housing. We ate at the restaurant. And, you know, my parents gave me at least 
tickets. What more do you need? Like I was very covered in, you know, friends, there's everything there. It's just you don't have, you can't buy a mountain bike or you can't buy a boombox or whatever the, the thing was, right? You can't buy new Nikes or whatever you needed, right? But, you know, I didn't need that. I, I, those were not part of my priorities, right? So mm-hmm. that was always, every year, it was nine months of really, really hard work and learning the craft, almost like a way a classical musician. And then with three months off, and they don't always come consecutively. It could be four and a half months of work, one and a half months off, four and a half, you know what I mean? It could be like that. But then you knew when you knew when you were getting off, and like, all right, get back home to Sweden. You hustle, you, you, you set up barbecues with your friends, and you know what I mean? You just make it work. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. I'm wondering now what your mental state was like because you mentioned that you would vomit, you would throw up before every shift. I don't know if that was an exaggeration or not. But you're also pursuing your call and your passion. So what, what was happening inside? Were you happy? Were you like anxious? Like what was going on inside mentally? Being way out of your league, way out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand if I spoke French at that point to work at the highest level, they switched to German. If I could speak German with them, they switched to Italian. These are guys that speak multiple languages. They're all there to teach you, but also all there to get you. And you can't mess up. There, it is a hazing system that obviously don't, hopefully don't exist anymore. It's not the best way of getting the most out of you. But it's also, we're in, we're in this school, so if you're 18 and the oldest dude you know is 22, he's the old guy on the block. And what do you think he's gonna do? He's gonna mess with you, because that's his level of power. And he get messed with, with, with the old guy that is 27, and he get messed with, with a really old guy that is 31. You know what I mean? There is no, mm-hmm. that's what it is, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's obviously not healthy and something that, but I learned a lot what to do and also what not to do. Yeah. These guys were the best at their craft, the meanest at their craft, 
but they were the best at the craft. So I was just like, all right, let me get this. Let me get the best. And there were matches when I knew that, oh my God, these guys know nothing about the world. You know, I remember I was going to Paris with a chef because now I spoke English and French. And I, like, they started to see advantage of bringing this black kid around because they got American customers. And then one of the, ki- one of the kids, maybe more 21, 22, and they, you know, I, I really adored Manuel, like this really good cook. And he said, hey, you going to be in Paris tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'm going with chef. Hey, uh, can you just give me a Hard Rock Cafe hat? And it was the first time I had advantage. I was like, you are this ballerina in cooking. You are a master, 22 and a master. What do you mean you want a Hard Rock Cafe hat? I felt at that moment that I've actually seen the world, right? And they've been nowhere. Mm. And it was the first time. And I was like, absolutely not. Fuck you. Not mm. going there. I'm not, I can't, first of all, we don't get an hour to take off to go into the city. But for him, Paris was equivalent of going to Hard Rock Cafe because he's seen it, right? And I'm like, we're cooking over this over here. We, we don't have an hour off mm-hmm. to like figure this shit out. And I was like, absolutely not. But that was the first mm-hmm. time where I felt like, whoa, I have an advantage of these guys. They, these guys know nothing outside cooking. And that was like a big V. That was a dip, big W for me. You obviously had a string of different jobs. If I had to summarize just from what I've researched, the takeaway from all of those jobs in the culinary world would be don't be lazy, don't be complacent, don't take shortcuts. Like In other words, you have to be excellent and you have to work hard and you have to show up and all of those things, especially as the black chef. Would that, is that accurate? I mean, I, it's interesting you look at it from that Over simplifying it. No, I just look at it. I'm in love. Like, I love the craft. So I didn't know how many hours I work. I still don't know how many hours I work. Like, I'm in love. Like, I'm deeply, fundamentally in love with the craft. But I feel like you also can't be lazy. Like, in order, in order to work your way up to an executive chef, like, you have to be damn near perfect. Yeah, but I mean, that's how you look at it. I didn't look at it like that. I felt like I found my groove. I, I mean, you know, I think when you find your groove, like, I know Serena worked hourly harder than most people. She just mm. doesn't perform like that. I know Naomi works hard now, right? So the hours, of course, what you put into it, but I was also deeply, I was going places. And at the same thing, you have to understand, mm-hmm. like my buddies were not going places. I mean, th- that's the time you know that when you're 18, 19, 20, you have one buddy goes to jail, one ba- buddy goes left, one buddy does really well. But you know, like you come back home and, Jonathan is now dating Ava. They used to date Anders. Like there's no, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You look at your village and there's really no progress or different progress. And I was like, these are my choices. Should I be here in Giberg and be in that? Or should I live in Lyon, Paris, New York, Singapore? I mean, I picked the latter. Do you know what I mean? There's not monetary here, mm-hmm. but it's definitely experiential. I've never thought about the amount of hours. Because when you like, you know, I don't know how many hours Nas crafted Illmatic. I'm sure he worked really, really, really hard on it because when he came out with it, it was like perfection, right? Because he'd been sitting on that all his, experiencing that all his life. So at the same time, when I get a three-star review, I'm 23 and people are like, how can you do that? Because I've been sitting on that all my life. 
There was that moment in France with Georges Blanc where you were basically told that thinking about starting your own restaurant is ridiculous because no one as ambitious as you has ever been able to do something like that. You could have listened to that. You're talking to a Michelin star chef, one of your idols at the time, but you decided to take the leap of faith. What made you do that? I didn't know. My parents guided me. So I, I didn't fly home. I took the train home. And that's like 40 hours of a train ride. That gives you a lot of time to think. And probably 20 of those hours, maybe I was done. And 20 of those, I was like, screw it, I'm going to go again. So it's not just a linear path, but what black journey of excellence is a linear path? None. And there lies the beauty in our culture. So I spoke to my dad and he came home and he's like, just come home. He's like, do you know anyone in New York? I said, as a matter of fact, I do. You should go to New York. I said, what? What do you mean New York? You know, they just picked a, there was a black mayor in New York City. That means that there will be space for a black chef. Now, if you know anyone, go and get it. I remember when I was like talking to my friend Peter, he's like, you want to come work with us? Marcus, you have experience in some of the best restaurants in the world. I said, yes. He's like, done, bet. Two weeks later, I was on the plane, there. You eventually become the executive chef at Aquavit. You're the youngest chef to get a three-star review. When that brought all of that new attention, did you feel differently inside or were you like the same person that you've always been the entire time, but now you're just being recognized for your contribution to that culinary scene? I think I felt mixed emotions. A, I didn't know what that meant. It's not like I read New York Times at that point. I was going to work and maybe I picked up the daily news on the side corner of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, you know what I mean? You're dealing in a world that's like above the 23-year-old's fundamental, like that's been in America for nine months. So I felt we, needed, we could improve. I'm busy. And I felt slightly embarrassed a year later because I knew there was a lot of black chefs that has worked hard and deserved all the accolades. And all of a sudden, with one scoop, I became one of the most recognized black chefs in the country, in the world. And that's a mm-hmm. lot for someone who's 23. And that was, you know, at that point, Patrick Clark was an amazing, it was, you know, he, he passed away a couple of years later, but an amazing mentor and incredible chef. And, you know, he guided me through that. And I felt embarrassed because he was like 15 years older than me and clearly laid a path for me. And people like Leah Chase and Edna Lewis and so on. So you got to, again, you got to acknowledge your privilege. How much of it was a political process, though, or is it, or what, why, why do you think you were rewarded with that? What made you different from everyone else? Fine dining is like classical music. Mm-hmm. It is not everyone's taste, but it operates on an extremely high level. And of course, working in a Swedish restaurant gave you a European note sets where a lot of black chefs didn't have because very often they came from the South, so they kept that different narrative. So the notes that, that I was operating from was something that the critic could understand. To a certain point, I still don't think they understand Sweden because Sweden was also not at that point part of the vocabulary of great countries of food. But we're all going to be given a, a toolbox of negatives and positives. And now it's, hey, got 30 minutes to figure this, figure this out. You know what I mean? 
navigate yourself through this. And you know, being in Midtown, being at a high-end restaurant, but I can also line up 10 items that would have been a disadvantage. When you are in Midtown, there's no one giving you that second love, like, oh, this is a high-end expensive restaurant. The food should be better. You know, so there's, you can, I can make a case for the positive, but I can also equally make a case for the negative because we were a very expensive restaurant. And when you tread on that high-end level, you better execute. There's no give. So that's what I'm saying. It's like classical music. It's like jazz at the highest level. This is not rhythmically where you can like, oh, we can play it over. No. And we're not really going into all of the failures as well, because eventually 11 happened and you guys had to move out of that place and you opened up another couple of locations, but then it didn't work out. But you eventually opened your own place, Mercado 55, which you described as your biggest professional failure. What was the takeaway from that? You know, when you got distance to it, I realized that Rooster wouldn't have been Rooster without Mercado. I had to go on that journey. I had to go on that journey of connect. There was a lot going on. I, I just met my family in Ethiopia at that time. I wanted to stretch and flex, and I felt like African food, which I still feel. I just finished a book about African food and how it links to the American experience. And there was no vocabulary on the other side to receive that. You know, and I think everything worked well, but my mistake was the guys I did it were, were club guys. And that's no one else's mm. fault but my fault. That's, that's not even their fault. They were clear who they were. These were guys I grew up with, basically, right? They were club guys. And I wanted to do it, and I thought I could overcome that. But that wasn't on me. That's not even on them. I'm not even mad at them. That was my bad. And those are all the different things that happens when you got to put a restaurant together. You got to get a location. We had that. It's got to be a vibe, an art. We had that. Got to build a kitchen. We did that. I just shouldn't have been messed that beautiful restaurant with club guys. And you were also in a club location to the meatpacking district. So, you know, like you mentioned, people don't come to that place to have the Kumbaya experience at an African meat restaurant. And it was very clear when you take a step back. But when you are an artist, when you are creative, you don't step back. You go with everything. And that's part right. of being an artist. But I am very grateful for that experience because that also made Rooster so delicious. That was the tipping point for Rooster. I mean, Rooster for me is a collective of so many Jezebels, of B. Smith, of mm-hmm. Edna Lewis, of Shark Bar, Mecca, of Leah Chase. All those experiences, what happens in Black Restaurant, we hide out, we have political conversation. But the beauty about Blackness is that it looks like church. The rich person mm. and the poor person is together, and that's what Rooster is. Mm-hmm. And, so and that wouldn't have happened unless I went through that. You know what I mean? So right. I go through all those experiences. And just before Rooster, and this really blew my mind when I came across this, you had, you had this other very intense experience where you had to basically buy the rights to your own name. Can you tell that story really quickly? I think as black people... Many black people have gone through those experiences in various ways, where there's a moment of catch-22 and you feel really like jammed, where part of it is yourself to blame, part of it is that you were not educated about how the world has moved, and part of it is the real stigma from not having generational wealth, right? Like if you grew up with a family that were lawyers, the first thing they would think about, who owns the name? When you grow up with things like 
even at my parents, you know, although they were middle class and upper middle class, IP was not part of my father's journey. He had no clue. It was end of the day, he was a fishing boy that made good in school. He didn't know the IP structure. I couldn't ask him about that. So I do think that it was a hard fought lesson, but I was coming up reading the stories of Pelé and Marvin, the black stories of our heroes. And there was always a level of complexity and being broke and being great mm -hmm. and doubt and confidence. So now it happened to me. Basically, for the listener who doesn't know, your partner in Aquavit was basically saying that because you got awarded with the three stars and, and I think you won three James Beard Awards, that your name was intellectual property that they partially owned. I worked so hard on just plowing through that and I navigate. We both moved, moved on. He's okay. I'm okay. I learned a lot. You know, I try to choose to look at the positive. I learned how to become a young chef in New York because of him. I was getting a shot and I learned how to manage through that situation. So it's not a boxing field where you're going to crush each other. It's really about how do you move forward in a way that it behooves you in best place right here, right now. And that led to to Red Rooster, which is your love letter to Harlem. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, for me, it's like you can't, no one is interested to hear about a successful chef complaining about how hard it was. It was, you know, it was tough. It was very tough, but I was also brought up to handle tough situations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm, I did it very well, and sometimes I did it poorly. And for me, it's a human side. Success has two sides. It has jealousy and it has success and you're going to lose friends and family members and you're going to gain other people and it's not linear i right. lost a lot of friends either through the journey or through other ways and it's difficult but you also gain an amazing amount of people so it's just life you know it, it's very tough it was very tough and i've thought and i slept i lost endless of nights and i'm not going back there I'm not. Mm -hmm. I just have this wall up. I'm not going back there. I'm not going to blame him. I need to blame myself. I just move forward. You've kind of emerged as a, an activist. You're an activist chef. And, you know, especially since the pandemic happened, you guys have been on the forefront along with the World Central Kitchen. You fed hundreds of thousands of people through your locations. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the blessings of living in Harlem is that you see America, right? When I walk my eight blocks from the restaurant and home, I walk through, I pass by several methadone centers, a couple of jails. I see people, you know, when exactly a year ago, how quickly it became a chaotic community. As somebody who employs 200 people and seats 5,000 people a week, you can't stand by and just watch that and don't do anything. You have to participate. So does Sylvia, so does Melba, so does Bevy, so does Thelma. You know what I mean? We're a community, so does Dab, and we all do it in different ways. So this is real. Like, you know, when I call the police commissioner, why are they dropping off all the Riker Islands population in Harlem? It's not the population's fault from Riker Island. Those are mm -hmm. institutional racism. 
They're not even from Harlem, some mm. of them. Why would we just say that they're from Harlem and Rothmore? When all the homeless people get dumped into 125th and 6th, and I call the city on that. And they're like, no, we don't. Yes, you do. I'm right here, right now. And what do you think that does to the COVID population that don't have masks or anything? What do you think that happens to, like, you know, auntie just going picking up her food? So COVID is now pre-pushed back into our community on a different way than other communities. Who took that decision that one mm. fifth, fifth and sixth should be the dumping ground for everything? Clearly not somebody who lived in Harlem. So when you see that, right, this is not something I made up. This is happening. And eventually we unpacked it and explained it. And I said, hey, I'm going to give you a week to unpack this and correct this. Otherwise, I'm going to put you on blast. And eventually it changed. So the institutional racism that happens in our communities is deep, it's deep tissue. And I live here and I see it. It's not just what you see in the surface or the lines to the community kitchen longer. They are because there's also more chaos dumped into our communities. And what's going to happen to that? So it's not just me. Like it's, it's JJ. It's, it's people who are Melba. You know, we, the beauty about food is we work in the communities. We're there. We're right there. We, we speak to the line cook and we speak to the highest CEO. What do you foresee in terms of how this whole thing is changing the landscape, the culinary landscape in New York and in the world? What I do know is that people of color are very strong. And you can have an argument that we've constantly been in different types of pandemics. And in many ways, if we can stay healthy, this might be the biggest reset of the history. And if we navigate through it, the reset can help our communities and our entrepreneurs to level up. It won't be one way, it won't be easy, but there is a reset opportunity here. You know, through social media, through connectivity, through the social justice conversation that happened basically about a year ago. And that is always how our journey happens, right? It's not one thing, right? So it's COVID and then it's America's having this big dialogue and then you have the election, right? That is very American to me. All three things, high level, fire at the same time. And this push and pull between haves and don'ts have. And you can argue that we've done many things great in America, but we failed truly with how we engage with one another in terms of the color of our skin. So now we have an opportunity to reset, and food can be a major part of connecting with one another. Two other things emerged during this pandemic. You released a book called The Rise Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food, which highlights the, the Black cooking diaspora. And, uh, and you launched a podcast called This Moment. Yeah. I mean, Jason and I are, you know, Jason Diakite is a rapper that happens to be American, Black and white, but grew up in Sweden. But highly deep tissues involved in America, you know, went back and forth between America, the States and Sweden. So he has this very unique perspective. And also being a rapper, he writes all his, you know, lyrics and everything. So he is in the community, is of the community. And we shared a lot. And it's been, for me, it was, as a creative person, what I was afraid the most was what I'm going to do with my creativity. Right? I can't just sit here. So me going to work at World Central Kitchen and hand out food was equally helpful to me as it was to the people we gave the food. Me and Jason setting up this moment and having my son and his daughter crying in the back it was mm -hmm. a way for us to build. So, you know, as creatives, we needed that. And it might be like a post-traumatic growth 
challenge that we dealt with, but we were doing it and I needed to finish my book. So I don't, you know, people ask, did you time the book to this conversation? <laughs> to what happened? I said, are you crazy? This book took four years to create four years. And the only reason why it came out was because I was delayed two years with it. And because of the world stopped, I actually had a chance to finish it. And I'm very grateful to all the contributors of the rise. And this is just the beginning. What's going to come out of the rise, you know, we're going to build, you know, we now built a fund called Black Business Matters Matching Fund, where we do local fundraising for black entrepreneurs, not just mm -hmm. restaurants, you know, because it impacts our community very differently, right? 41% mm -hmm. of black businesses because of COVID are gone, not coming back. So, you know, things like that, like these are things that we work on. So this moment has been almost like going to see a psychiatrist in a way, like it's been me and Jason just pouring out and obviously I had some great people like Nicolana Jones, you know, Kimberly Jones in the middle of the summer, you know, Angela Rai, but also adding on other isms, right? Like Sophia Chang, you know, Al Gore talking about environment. So keeping this, you know, very energetic, high and low conversation about issues in our communities. And also, it's a good thing that the book was delayed because you got to add in some commentary about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And I guarantee you there's no cookbooks that are, that are mentioning, you know, any of those any of those really relevant topics. And so I, I was I was really excited to see that in the introduction of the cookbook. Yeah, but it's really sad that we have to go there and do that. It is. Mm -hmm. Yes, we got that that in, and I thanked the publisher to stop everything so I could rewrite that. Yeah, it's really, really sad. The sad thing is that we know that those are not the last stories, right? You know, these stories are amazing, but they're very American, and it's so sad because we know it's not the last stories. Well, the other thing is, you know, I don't know if you follow the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson's group down in uh, in Alabama, but. On their social media, every day they have this calendar where they post some historical event that happened that highlights the spread of white supremacy. And like, for instance, yesterday, this is March 4th, they posted, on this day in 1921, a white lynch mob hunting a black man saw a different black man walking down a road and killed him instead. They claim mistaken identity, but they face no punishment. And they say that we post these every day to overcome, because to overcome racial inequality, we must confront our history. So I think, you know, I, I'm in the meditation space, so I talk about it in my space. You're in the culinary space. You talk, like, we all have to address it. We have to talk about it. We have to put it in uncomfortable places because the people who are trying to avoid it they need to be confronted with that in order for us to really heal as a nation. That's how I think you're, you're approaching that, which I was really inspired to see. I thank you for acknowledging the rise and the book and everything that we do. It's something that has been the biggest privilege of my life creatively to work on and to highlight pro and broadcast black stories in the culinary space is what I devoted my life to. And, you know, I'm slow, right? The Soul of a New Conceit came out in 2006, so 15 years later. You know, it doesn't mean I haven't done books between that, but it was a 15-year gap between those types of books. And 15 years ago, nobody got it. There was no social media in that, in that level. So it's like, well, what's the link? But now people got it, and, and it's been very helpful and refreshing to be able to have those conversations. But we all know that we're, we're not at the finish line. We're only right. 
And I would say for anyone looking to dive into your podcast this moment, I, I haven't listened to every single episode, but one of the episodes that I connected with really deeply was the Daryl McDaniels, who who is the DMC of Run DMC, and particularly because the crazy story he told about learning he was adopted as an adult after he had had all this success and he was thinking about committing suicide and how you guys really bonded over that, over those experiences. Cause you know, you didn't meet your birth family until you were in your thirties. And that just brought a lot of revelations into both of your lives. So I would say start there and, uh, and then work from there. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> thank you. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully next Absolutely. time we can have dinner together or meditate together. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Take care, man. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Chef Marcus Samuelson. Make sure you check out his new podcast, which is called This Moment, as well as his latest cookbook, which is called The Rise. And I found his memoir, Yes, Chef, to be very inspiring as well. You can follow Marcus on Instagram at Marcus Cooks. And if you haven't done your good deed for the day and you want to support this podcast, it literally only takes 10 seconds to leave a review and that 10 seconds is going to go a long way in helping me and us spread these stories further and wider all you do is glance down at your screen click where it says at the end of the tunnel which is in purple if you're not listening to this on the podcast app look for a button that says listen on apple podcast and then you'll see the purple link click on it scroll down past the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews tap that star on the far right and you've left a rating. It's that easy. And I thank you in advance for taking those 10 seconds to do that for me. It really means a lot. To get the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Chef Samuelson, you can go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years now. And my book launch for Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is based on my daily email, is coming up soon. That is your pocket guide for inspiration, and it's now officially available for pre-order everywhere books are sold. You can find the purchase links at lightwatkins.com. Thanks again for listening and for sharing this episode with your friends and your followers. I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, and I'm sending you lots of peace and love. Have a blessed day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.